Subspace Transmission Subspace Transmissions Hey, it's Subspace Transmissions for Star Trek Generations. Oh boy. We talked about the film for like four fucking hours. Now yeah. it's time to talk about the film for a couple more fucking twice, hours. Twice as long as the movie it actually is. Yeah. Uh, you know, but <laughs> about as long as the movie actually feels. Yeah. So... Uh, let's just jump right in here. Uh, Star Trek The Next Generation executive producer Rick Berman was approached by Paramount Pictures executives uh, in the fall of 92 uh, during the series six seasons in regard to a seventh Star Trek film. While the studio intended Star Trek VII to be a TNG vehicle, Berman and uh, co-producer at the time, Brandon Tartikoff, felt the outing was an opportunity to, quote, pass the baton. In February 1993, Berman and the studio commissioned two stories and three writers. A fourth TNG writer and DS9 co-creator, Michael Piller, passed, objecting to what he viewed as, quote, competition for the assignment. Good on you, Michael Piller. Yeah. Although at the same time, maybe Michael Piller could have done a much better job than anyone who did this. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so as written by former TNG writer, producer Maurice Hurley, the film had Captain Picard recreating Captain James T. Kirk on the holodeck to help him solve a dilemma involving an interdimensional species wreaking havoc by crossing into our realm. Sounds kind of cool. Yeah. I think that would have probably been better. So then current TNG, uh, writing staffers, Ronald D. Moore and Brandon Braga, whose script was ultimately greenlighted chose to feature Kirk appearing in the flesh as well as initially the entire Star Trek TNG or sorry, TOS cast, which uh, didn't work out. Yeah. I mean, I, and I guess they didn't even ask Uhura to be, to make an appearance. That fucking sucks. Yeah. Which is like, <laughs> that fucked really up, fucking, which sucks. is really fucked up. Like, right. uh, <clears throat> and, um, yeah. And we hate that. And so much. of course, like, yeah, you know, Leonard Nimoy wanted no involvement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like yeah, like to not include her is so fucking weird because like she's the reason like Whoopi Goldberg is on TNG. Yeah, like yeah, Jesus. Okay, great. So uh, through Moore and Braga, at first bandied about ideas which involved the two Enterprise crews battling each other. The pair of writers quickly abandoned this concept. Uh, Ron Moore explained uh, after the movie was released in 1994. He said. Quote, the best possible poster you could ever hope to have for this picture would show you the two enterprises battling against each other. We all tried our best, but we were never able to come up with any scenario that made both crews look heroic. No matter how we played around with this thing, somebody was going to come off looking like the bad guy. So then we returned a little more solidly to the mystery that spans two generations idea that would allow Whoopi Goldberg as Guinan as the tie that binds the two. That would have made sense. That kind of makes sense, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like doing like a um, uh, sort of true detective type thing. Yeah, yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah, that, like, yeah, it's like, yeah, have like something that like the, yeah, the uh, original cast mm -hmm. couldn't solve or like let, but left behind clues to help solve it. And then yeah, like, yeah. and then, yeah, the TNG cast picks those up and finishes it. Mm -hmm. That would pick me up and finish me, my friend. <laughs> and I don't like to be picked up. I mean, no. I don't remember the last time I was. I don't think that, no one's ever picked me up and fucked me, you know? Mm. Kind of sucks. <laughs> You're like, yeah, hint, hint to all the listeners out there. <laughs> I don't I don't know if anyone 
any of our <laughs> listeners could pick me up. Yeah. I'm, I'm not exactly small. No, no, no. Um, yeah. And also, I don't bottom, so I don't like. Yeah. I just want like, I don't know, like it'd be yeah. Hmm. <laughs> How can you top while being picked up? <laughs> That's. I gotta. I'll meditate on this later while I'm <laughs> masturbating. But anyway, back to the movie. Meditations on on uh, on uh, on, uh, on bottoming. <laughs> Not bottoming. No, no, no. I want to. Yeah. I want to be topping while someone's picking me up. Oh, is the yeah. thing. And I'm. I'm just like, how do we? Do? And I'm, you know, someone. You know, I don't. Know. Oh, I could backpack on someone and fuck their ass. That'd be kind of fun. There you go. Yeah. Or fuck them yeah. Like a pussy. Yeah, so I'm, I'm sure the Kama Sutra, you can just like fuck through it and like, I need the forbidden Kama Sutra. I feel like that's cultural appropriation, right? <laughs> I, I need to figure out the white man sex. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> For our people! <laughs> so, um, but uh, that certainly is a your struggle. <laughs> <laughs> she, she, no, no, Pat, no, no. <laughs> Braga and Moore nonetheless continued searching for a major event to anchor the film, recalled Moore. Uh, one of us just kind of threw it out. What if we kill Kirk? Yeah. And then we all kind of looked at each other and said, wow, that would be amazing. Uh, from that point on. <laughs> it wasn't. It was sucked. Uh, from that point on, Kirk's death became part of the fabric of her story. And as a big surprise to us all, there was never a moment where it really came into question, which is fine. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's a cool idea. Like, it's a... In, I'm glad they killed Kirk. Kirk yeah. needed to die. At the same time, like six was a great send off. Yes. Bringing him into the film in the timeline made it convoluted. Yeah. Like it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I do like the idea that it's a mystery that spans time. Mm-hmm. And also like maybe their only interaction is like them visiting the crew, the TOS crew on the holodeck. And sort not of, even I don't I don't think even that would really work. I think mm-hmm. like I don't know, like a mystery through time is cool where they like leave clues or something or like Yeah. But I mean like the they, work of the past like yeah. completes the work of the future somehow like it was almost like thought of, you know. But I mean they're kind of like but it'd be a good but the holodeck thing would be a good thing like them like saying thank you in a, in their own way to the cast. It, it, the and same, that that would be a good way to bridge bring them into together mm-hmm. but also kind of leave like the TOS um, the TOS characters' fates, you know, unknown. So we don't know how they died. And yeah, and I always like that. Like, yeah. some mystery is nice there. Yeah. Uh, although it would be awesome, too, if they were just like, uh, yeah, Kirk got AIDS. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't age well at all. But no. it, it would have been awesome, like, if they just chose that to go with. <laughs> and just, he delivers it like like the, <laughs> like the lady in the room. Just, I got AIDS! It's like, yeah, he, uh, yeah, we miss old Jim. He got the, uh, he got the space aids. Rolled around with a few too many Andorians, if you know what I mean. But I mean, Shatner does make a reappearance. Where? Um, uh, William Shatner later wrote a Star Trek novel, title, the title, The Return, in which the Romulans and the Borg have formed an alliance. They bring Kirk back to life using Bork nanotechnology and turn him against Picard and the crew that's, of the Star that's, Trek Enterprise. That's, that's beta shit, man. <laughs> that's, that's, that's memory beta shit that nobody cares about. <laughs> but it is written by William Shatner. No, it's not. Yeah. No, it has his name on it. It's ghostwritten. <laughs> ghostwritten. By two people who can actually write a fucking book. And, and then, like, William Shatner. And William Shatner's probably sitting there in a chair... 
uh, what if I come back to life? <laughs> I'm uh, sure like they're oh, I'm, but but I'm I'm uh, twice as strong this time. Yeah. Uh, no, no, t- ten times as strong because uh, <laughs> they uh, uh, you, you know the god that uh, uh, in Star Trek Five, they uh, give me his power. <laughs> uh, like in some poor fucking like twenty year old who's getting you know with a fucking English degree who's getting paid like twelve dollars an hour. Just cries. Yeah, it's just like crying into the keyboard. <laughs> this keyboard's waterlogged now too. <laughs> like, sir, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and then he's just like. Shatner just like scoots over another check and like, oh God, just keeps continuing. <laughs> uh, here, uh, draw your tears with this. Make sure I come out the hero. <laughs> so uh, as proposed by Moore and Braga, the film would feature Kirk and his original TOS shipmates in a prologue with Kirk later appearing in the film's climax. Berman later recalled the process, quote, in both scripts, the stories that we developed were stories that entailed uh, to different degrees members of the TOS along with uh, TNG crews. First, we went through the story development on both, and both stories were submitted to the studio. We got a lot of notes from the studio. The stories were revised, and then we went to first draft on each. Eventually, it became quite obvious that the studio and I were leading towards Ron and Brandon's script. That's not to say Murray's script wasn't terrific. It was just far less advanced by the time we really had to make a decision. Um, unquote. Berman and the studio pursued the Moore slash Braga story. Early drafts of the script took shape under the guidance of Rick Berman and with input by Shatner. Great. That makes sense. <laughs> the film's villain, uh, originally called Moorish, was later changed to Dr. Soran uh, to avoid recalling David Korish. <laughs> David Koresh from, from uh, fucking uh, from Waco, Texas. Yeah, uh, wow. The, the cult. That's wild. There. What was the name of this cult? Uh, Branch Davidian. No. Is it? I don't know. It's David Koresh. Uh, yeah, Branch Davidian. You're yeah, right. Branch yeah, Davidian. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Uh, oh uh, yeah, the offshoot of the Davidian Seventh Day Adventists. Mm. Gotta love them, folks. We love we love Koresh. <laughs> Shit. So much production. So much production. So, anyway. um, A first draft script was completed during TNG's six-season hiatus, uh, dated the 1st of June, 1993. As of the 1st of October that year, the script prologue contained Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Scott, Ahura, Sulu, and Chekhov. Uh, The script was in its third draft by the 6th of December of 93. And the third draft's first revised pages were added to the screenplay on that date. The early scripts featured large action set pieces that were later removed. Among them was the Romulan attack on the Amargosa Observatory, cut when TNG uh, writer Jerry Taylor suggested us using something more charming. Another major revision to the script revolved around the Dura sisters and their crew. Surviving the destruction of their ship, they would have battled the Enterprise D crew in the jungles of Viridian 3, which would have been awesome. Mm. Uh, the producers eventually chose to pair the performances of the TOS cast down to two select cameos. This decision was made in January of 94, when the fourth draft of the script was issued, with Kirk, Spock, and McCoy in the prologue. The producers then sought their guest stars, while Shatner agreed to appearing uh, pending script approval, Nimoy and DeForest Kelly, 
the two preferred cameo appearances were less than eager to return, stating they felt their characters made sufficient exits in the previous film. Both actors declined to appear in Star Trek VII. Leonard Nimoy, having been offered the director's chair, reportedly requested script changes, but was rebuffed. In his memoir, Star Trek Movie Memories, William Shatner wrote, Leonard, surprisingly, wasn't all that upset with this usual turn of events. As you know, on Treks 3, 4, and 6, Leonard had been very involved very early on, nursing his projects through the story level and the scripted process, while simultaneously functioning as director and ultimately producer. However, this time around, that simply wouldn't have been his job. The story came from Rick Berman. It was written by his own handpicked writers, and essentially, Leonard was being asked to shoot their script as written, and he wasn't all that interested. I'm kind of glad he didn't, to be mm-hmm. honest. I don't think he could have really improved much at all here. No. And his directorial style was very, like, almost dated at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, at that point, he was doing fucking, like, the three men and a baby shit. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's fine. It's, it's good movies for mm-hmm. that kind of thing, but come on. Uh, in an interview with Trek Movies' Anthony Pascal uh, in July 2007, Nemo explained the issues he had with the Generation script and why he declined to appear. After proclaiming that, quote, there was no Spock role in that script, he elaborated, saying, quote, <clears throat> there were five or six lines attributed to Spock, but it had nothing to do with Spock. They were not Spock-like in any way. I said to Rick Berman, you could distribute these lines to any one of the other characters and it wouldn't make any difference. And that is exactly what he did. There is no Spock function in the script. I have always tried to make a contribution to these movies. There was no contribution to be made in that movie. It was just sort of, let's get Nimoy in here too. I said, there is nothing I can do. I said, thanks, but I'll pass. Noble. Yeah, and he used the fact that James Doohan was able to just say his lines, Mm -hmm. and you wouldn't, like, unless you were paying a lot of attention, like, you would have had no idea. No, 100%. (laughs) And, like, and, um... And yeah, Nimoy was just like, "Well, that's proof," and which is just it's just funny to me. Like, yeah, he's proven completely correct, and and I feel like, yeah, if you bring Spock in, you would have definitely had to expand everything. I feel like you'd have had to because like the novelization includes, um, uh, the funeral scene where Spock attends, right? And that would have been a that would have been a touching scene. That that would have been an appropriate. Nope. Yeah, that would have been great. That would have been appropriate for, you know, because like... That oh, yeah, if he could have eulogized him, like, at the end of fucking um, Wrath of Khan, mm-hmm. like, yeah, Kirk did for him, that would have been emotionally super impactful. That would have been incredible. And, it, like, honestly, like, a meeting of Spock and Picard alone could have been really fucking cool. Yes. And, the, yeah, like, not including Spock in the final moments of... of, of uh, Kirk's you know, death? Kirk's no, death. No, like, Kirk, not. Because Kirk pretty much died twice in this. Yes, he died. He true. died. He died in the eyes of the people in his time, and he mm-hmm. died again later on. And so, you know, would have like that would have been a thing. Like they could have, like at the end of that, actually gone back in time oh, to actually, show the funeral to show them actually, actually the actual funeral that they had back in back in that time. Like, straight up, they could have used like this to basically replay fucking the end of Wrath of Khan, but in the other direction with like Spock. You know, seeing like Kirk dying, mm-hmm. that could have been so fucking cool. Yeah, honestly, that that could have rocked. That would have been the coolest death for 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 Kirk to have a hero's death. Yeah, and like and then like the touching moment of of Leonard Nimoy, you know, eulogizing his like you know best friend, friend slash yeah. boyfriend, yeah, lover, lover. <laughs> lover. We can just call him. Lo- and so, uh, yeah, that that was a missed opportunity, and I feel that's like what where a lot of this 
went downhill mm-hmm. story-wise like and that uh, that would have been also nice like yeah if they actually had did were able to like mm-hmm. rope Nimoy into it that would have been fun to to like constantly cut be cutting back between the TNG cast to to the to the uh, TOS cast and their time that they're both working on this problem at the same time and then and like and so yeah this this makes me think like I think one of Ronald Z. Moore and Brandon Braga's like biggest faults when it comes to Star Trek. And I, I think both of them are great. Mm-hmm. They've written some great stuff for it, but they're so concerned with world building yeah. that sometimes, you know, they miss the forest for the trees mm-hmm. and like, you know, like don't focus enough on the past and how significant that is. Mm-hmm. And they're just like concerned with like building a new future, which is cool, but it's mm-hmm. like at the same time, it's always awesome to see like echoes of the past in this. And, a lot of the excuse me, TOS films reference themselves a lot. And I feel like Generations doesn't reference the TOS films like at all, really. No, no. Which is kind of strange in a way. Yeah. And yeah, it would it would have been nice to like, yeah, just like see like the parallels between the two. Mm-hmm. Like they could have like been showing like the parallels between the two. Um, oh, like a split screen kind of. The good well, that, well, that split screen, yeah, just like but like going back and showing how like they both attack this pro- back as, uh, the same problem, and then like in this aisle, they both work on it and reach their reach reach a like they like it could have been like the TOS cat, like crew originally stopped a problem that just reemerged later, and wow. that the, the for the TNG crew to also face, and then like and then just kind of like those parallels or like the differences are showing or showcasing the differences between the two two crews and how yeah, they that, that could have been cool but uh no one wanted to come back no one wanted to come back everyone burned all their goddamn bridges like, yeah and of course yeah they did and they could have had spock but they didn't write him a good good part it was just yeah. like five lines and and also no one wants to work with william shatner everyone hates that asshole. no <laughs> yeah he, he really shot himself in the foot there like yeah. uh he could have he could have uh been a little bit more uh also if i'm not mistaken if fucking Nimoy would have come back and directed this like they wanted. Mm-hmm. Fucking First Nations would have let fucking Shatner take <laughs> first contact. Yeah. Which would have been a f- steaming pile of dog shit, man. Mm-hmm. Would have been the worst film. <laughs> Imagine, yeah, he's like, after he dies, he still finds some way to make fucking first contact about Captain Kirk. Well, it's interesting because he also like... uh Shatner wanted to return for the Chris Pine movies. Oh, I, I, I actually, uh, that, that's in my Trek news that we're going to talk about. Oh, interesting. Yeah. X, yeah. Awesome. Yep. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. Cause like, uh, was he wanted, wanted uh, again to come back or something? Basically. Cause like, that was like, cause he, 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 but he basically wanted them to like write a bunch of the script around him and make him like the main thing about the script. And JJ mm. uh, Abrams was like, yeah, no, no, no not going to happen. Yeah. That, that sounds expensive and dumb. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. And but he's like, well, Nimoy came back and the, he's like, well, yeah, Nimoy's good though. Bye. It's also like, I feel like, like, you know, um, the Star Trek, you know, this, the new Star Trek, you know, films, Kelvin, yeah. the Kelvin universe, they do a lot of wrong. Like the first one and into darkness are probably, or I mean, the first one's salvageable into darkness is a crime against humanity. And it's, it's, it's fine. The first <laughs> one, I'd, I'd say the first one for what it is and for being like a reintroduction into Star Trek, the whole Kelvin thing is dumb as fuck. It yeah. was a dumb, bad idea to do that. 
Like you could have just done a reboot of it, mm-hmm. and that's it. You didn't the, the the Kelvin thing. Like it was, I mean, it 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 was a, a thing that was like not that consequential, really. You know, yeah. Kirk's dad dying or not. Mm-hmm. It's not something that I think really shapes him as a person or a captain or anything. No. Either way, like I mean, the, both the Kirks have Kirks have very similar temperaments. Yeah. The only Kirk that doesn't feel like Kirk is the brand new one on Strange New Worlds. No. Um, and so I'm like, I mean, why make it a different universe? Yeah. I, I just don't get it. Yeah. One thing that could have been interesting is if, uh, he was just like, oh yeah, this is just the, like the Terran mirror universe. Oh, yeah, that yeah. could have been interesting. Cause mm. have we explored the TOS Terran or the T? I mean, mm. there's, there's a couple, I think yeah, mirror a universe, but yeah. like, I don't know if, did we ever even get a mirror Jim Kirk? I don't recall. Yeah. Did we? No. But I, I, was, but I know I, we got but mirror was, Spock with a beard, but yeah. like, yeah. But I was saying like, uh, um, I feel like one thing they did is they were able to see, they're able to incorporate uh, the TOS cast with, for, with good reason, you know, mm-hmm. like Spock, the original Spock Nimoy was able to have a reason for being there. Yeah. And then like, and then, did something that felt tasteful where he yeah, like it was a very it was a great tasteful send off mm-hmm. and it was like also like yeah, uh, re- the the reason he had to be there though sucked yeah because he, he needed health insurance because he was dying yes <laughs> yeah and, and then and SAG was like you need to be in a fucking movie to have our health insurance mm-hmm. he's like I am dying I was <laughs> fucking Spock yeah but yeah. and like I did, I'd like to. And you know they had to feel it. They needed to incorporate TOS into Generations to to bridge the gap. You know, pass mm-hmm. the torch. And I feel like, yeah, the Kelvin universe passed the torch in a in a in a more respectful way and I feel a more natural way to Star Trek. Yeah. And that, it's like okay, that makes sense. Like the Generations thing just kind of felt like wedged in, and I I don't feel like the story needed it, and it didn't feel like it was like a good. Story for Jim Kirk. <laughs> it it um it would have worked like as the first episode of TNG a lot better than it. Mm, yeah, movie. yeah, I could see that. Yeah. yeah, and that's when you know, like uh, Shatner would have been a little bit more spry. Yeah, and maybe not burned as many bridges as he had at that point. Yeah, but that, 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 this all that also would have been like what after Star Trek Four. Yeah. So and in a weird place. Yeah. So. Excuse me. Um. So, later drafts of Generations and the full TNG finale, All Good Things, were written simultaneously. Uh, This often led the writers to mix the stories up. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, in their joint uh, 2004 commentary on Star Trek Generations DVD, the writers admitted that they felt All Good Things turned out to be the superior effort. Totally agreed. Mm Mm-hmm. During the scripting stages, however, the studio had few qualms and pre-production proceeded even as filming on Star Trek The Next Generation was winding down and Deep Space Nine continued. Mm. Next, we go to pre-production. With the start of pre-production, Berman battled the studio over budget figures. The film cut in cost to an estimated $35 million. Hopes for a location shooting in Hawaii and Idaho were dropped in favor of more local shoots in Hollywood, Marina Del Rey, Pasadena, Lone Pine, and the Valley of Fire State Park near Las Vegas, Nevada. By the 16th of March, 1994, Moran Braga's script reflected budget and cast changes. In place of his first choice, Leonard Nimoy, veteran TNG and DS9 director David Carson was hired. 
intern recruiting veteran cinematographer John Alonzo of Chinatown and Scarface fame, which mm. is interesting. It is interesting. Uh, Herman Zimmerman, who designed the initial TNG and DS9 sets and also worked as production designer on the last several TOS films, was called back into service on the film, working with Alonzo and illustrator John Eaves to refresh the aging TV sets. Budgetary constraints uh, reigned in some of the proposed sets. The new stellar cartography set reduced from three levels to two. As with most of the previous Trek movie installments, visual effects giant uh, Industrial Light and Magic was hired to produce space and spaceport shots. While TNG mainstay CIS Hollywood was brought in for phaser shots, transporter effects, cloaking and decloaking transitions, and the Picard family Christmas ornament. <laughs> Holographic ornament. I do remember having some uh, Generation stuff. Like, uh... Like what? Uh, it was like I think like there was like the collectible cups of some, from somewhere or something. That sounds fun, like a, yeah. like a Burger King or Taco. Yeah, Bell it was like some place that had collectible cups. I can't oh, I can't remember where it was from, but yeah, we we all got it. Like I don't know, we were all buzzing because were they were they like the glass cups or the the plastic cups? Uh, I remember too much. I just remember like it just had. I think it was. I definitely definitely it was plastic, but it was just like had like some TNG shit on it. Mm-hmm. TNG TOS shit on it. It was pretty cool. Like, it, like uh, we were all buzzing, like all psyched for generations. Wild. <laughs> uh, so, last minute decisions included the hiring of actor Malcolm McDowell as the man who would, at least in the final draft of the script, gun down Captain Kirk, reportedly later receiving death threats from obsessed fans. The actor's nephew and DS9 star, Alexander Sadig, which I didn't know. Oh, yeah. uh, later said during an interview that Malcolm McDowell thought their script was shit. <laughs> uh, McDowell had previously explained his reason for accepting the role, saying, quote, When Rick asked me to be in his film, I was thrilled. I said, I'd love to do it. I want to be the man to kill Kirk. And when I read the script, I thought Soren was an interesting and wonderful character, and obviously he would ultimately be given the honor of pulling the trigger that kills the good Captain Kirk. Mm. I had immediately become a trivia question at Star Trek conventions all over the globe. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like he's doing this for very selfish reasons. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. I remember I read something that he was not <coughs> never a huge fan of TOS or TNG. <laughs> yeah. So he's just like, but yeah, I think he was probably was looking for the, for the honor of being the one, but I mean that fucking sick ass convention money, dude. Like, yeah, I would love to even have like a bit part in a Star Trek thing. You could, basically make a living if you're like recognizable enough oh yeah just being on a star trek episode yeah being like oh my god you're what's this face Mm -hmm. yeah i think i saw uh i can't remember what i was watching but i saw someone that was in a oh yeah i was watching a as at the gym there was a macgyver episode Mm -hmm. and i was just like oh my god it's the it's the uh one dude from um the uh tng episode um where he's like the old guy on the planet he was Old guy, uh, that, that ex, that's like a third of TNG episodes. <laughs> Just find like an old guy on a planet with a weird secret. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> that's like all of, of Star Trek. Man. I was like, oh my God, the old guy on the planet. The old guy on the planet with a deep, dark secret. It's like they go down and they think it's a utopia, but the utopia is run on fucking child fumes or something. <laughs> oh, it's the guy that uh, transferred his intelligence into uh, Data's mind. Or, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was that dude. And, um, 
Yeah. You mean his Katra. His Katra, yeah. The Katra is stored in the balls. Yeah. I, that's all I could think about. I was like smiling to myself. I'm like, eh. Alrighty. Next, we got to some sets and set designs. So, despite its reuse of sets built, in some cases as early as 1978 for Star Trek The Motion Picture, production designer Herman Zimmerman and his art department, namely John Eaves, began designing and redesigning as early as December 1993 for the film. One of the first and most elaborate sets generated from Paramount's motion picture art department was the two-story cellar cartography room. Initially conceived after a visit to Griffin's Park Lazorium, Lazarium in Los Angeles, the room was imagined as a large sphere, eventually becoming a more budget-friendly cylinder. <laughs> John, and that's the thing, like, reading this, I'm like, why they wanted to make a movie so bad that they just cut a bunch of corners and made it a bad movie. Yeah. Which is like, you can see money on film and when you just cut fucking corners, it looks dumb. I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, you'll get into it. I'm sure. But mm. like the uniforms. Yeah. Like, oof. Yeah. I mean, it's only a couple uniforms, but yeah, the uniforms. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> John Eaves described the process in his book, Star Trek, The Next Generation Sketchbook, The Movies. He said, quote, illustrator Clark Schaefer had just started on the film at the time and helped out with the immense load of drawings that had to be done. He took a rough console design I did for the cartography platform and did a breakdown of the way the console should be put together. Again, I have to say that one of the exceptionally nice things about working on the Star Trek films is that everyone is so involved and helpful with design ideas. Mike Okuda and Herman Zimmerman uh, contributed a number of wonderful ideas to how this room should look. And I have to say, that was, uh, that was, sorry, that the final set was an impressive thing to see. Not only in the finished film, but in real life. Which, yeah, the, the main set looks pretty good. While a hoped-for floating platform proved to be too expensive and impractical, the set was realized with a combination of large backlit graphics and blue screen projection created at Industrial Light and Magic. The set was created in sections with wild walls that could be moved in and out. Lighting elements were integrated into the ceiling requiring little modification from shot to shot. A small section of the Enterprise D corridor was erected behind the upper platform of the bridge. Also conceived of in December, the Enterprise B's deflector control room was designed to be a large vertical area dominated by large machine elements, a second-level observation balcony, and access panels built into the stage floor. Again, as the film's budget tightened, the design team returned to the drawing boards in February of 94 to design a smaller vertical access shaft. David Carson, the director, recalled... That gave us the most wonderfully interesting camera angles, making the approach different. From horizontal to vertical meant dealing with the budget in a creative way like that. Herman had a good time designing that. He ran through it about four times by himself just to make sure he had plenty of stuff for Shatner to do. <laughs> Great. Um, regarding the most visible section of the Enterprise D, the main bridge, Zimmerman and Eves uh, took the opportunity to alter the set. Echoing modifications it received in the TNG episode Yesterday's Enterprise, the bridge gained additional computer stations situated along the port in starboard bulkheads. Uh, John Eaves says, quote, Herman wanted to take the bridge more functional. To accomplish that, we raised the captain's chair slightly, symbolically putting his authority higher than the others sitting uh, flanking him, 
For functionality, we also split the ramps on either side of the commander's center. We still had a ramp going down, but added two elevated stations, one against either wall where crew members could work. We also replaced an alcove filled with lockers and storage panels with new graphics station courtesy of Mike Okuda. At one point, we had added some new stand-up stations behind the captain's chair where Worf works. It was a nice design, but it wound up being simply too much of a modification, so we dropped it. <laughs> what? <laughs> All right. Worf, however, did finally receive a chair to sit on at his post. <laughs> the set was also repainted and recarpeted with handrails added near the doors to the observation lounge and aft turbo lift. Uh, working video monitors were incorporated into many of the ship's display statuses or status displays. The captain's ready room adjacent to the bridge received a new larger fish tank built into the wall and larger window. That's where all the fucking budget went. Mm -hmm. It's a fish tank. No one needs a fucking fish tank. No. Um, other sets aboard the Enterprise received only minor reworking. Engineering was connected to another corridor set by removing the plugs from the walls. The four red alert lights in the hallway of the engineering set were also illuminated during the engineering scenes, even when the ship was not in battle as well as some of the beige beams being painted to darker copper color around the engineering pool table overhead lighting was reduced in all of the sets with display screens popping from the darkness of the modifications. Zimmerman said, quote, I hope the fans will say, Oh, that's what I've been seeing on that little TV screen all these years. <laughs> Following the end of the production, the interior sets of the enterprise were struck and replaced with those belonging to a new starship, the USS Voyager for the upcoming series. Guess, guess what the name of the series is. Uh, discovery. You son of a bitch. <laughs> it's Enterprise. Oh. Uh, of, the, of the original sets, only small sections of the corridors, sick bay, transporter room, and engineering were left standing. Although the new sets were constructed directly over the basic framework and floor plan originally designed and built uh, for the aborted Star Trek Phase 2, which is wild that they're still like using the bones of the aborted Star Trek project from 1976. Mm for the Star Trek films in the mid-90s now. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Uh, it's, and it's kind of insane that they were just, like, sitting around this entire time. <laughs> I mean, they're, like, on sound stages and yeah. stuff that are constantly being used for basically the same thing. Yeah. You know, if you're making a, a Star Trek film every two or three years, mm. it's likely that those sets never even move. Yeah. You know? They're just built over and built over and built mm. over, so. Um, so... Uh, of the remaining sets, only a small piece of the Enterprise D sick bay, the ceiling, remained in use of Star Trek Enterprise, which is really interesting. Uh, <laughs> however, the Enterprise D observation and lounge set, the only TNG set not used for the film, was spared the wrecking ball and saved against a future need, eventually appearing modified as the observation lounge of the Enterprise E in first contact in Nemesis. The interior of the Amargosa Observatory was a redress of the Enterprise B main bridge, which was itself a redress of the USS Enterprise A main bridge from Star Trek VI. Details built into the observatory set were meant to imply that it had been built around the time of TOS with jeweled buttons and labels similar to those used of the original Enterprise. A half-globe map of the cosmos used in the Enterprise-D Stellar Cartography Lab on the TV series, appears in the wreckage of the observatory, along with an elevator from Data's lab. Mm. 
Yeah, cool. stellar cartography uh, uh, scene was pretty cool. Like, I wish they would use that more often. <laughs> yeah. They use it. They use it a few times. You know, these uh, like you know, uh, in Voyager. You know, it's like one of like uh, um, seven of nine's favorite places to be. <laughs> you know, work in the stellar cartography room, and yeah, it's just like cool. Hell yeah. Little scene. Yeah. Yeah, I, I did like the stellar cartography room, but like it's obvious they blew a ton of fucking money on it. Yeah, that they could have like spent on making the film better in any way. Yeah, I feel yeah because like at, at the end of the day, it's definitely a story issue, and like and yes. and like the fact that they that they had both living casts mm. and they could have really pulled off something pretty cool. And, oh, absolutely. And um, they chose not to. Well. Part of the reason, yeah, I mean, as you said, like, you know, I mean, no they one chose wa- not to, but other people chose for them not to as yeah, well. Yeah. Yeah. No one wanted to work with Shatner, but also it's like they didn't do anything to really like want to bring people in in, in the oh, first place. Very true. And, and yeah, like Malcolm McDowell, like, I feel like if they let, let him loose, mm-hmm. like, oh, he's a great actor. Yeah. yeah it, like, that's him. the thing. Like, they could have used him for another project, I feel. True. Like, I feel like this could have been like, um, Focus more on the ca- on the two casts. It could have, or honestly, they should have maybe completely cut out the TOS element. Yeah, completely cut it's, out the TOS it's element. That, it's either that or cut out, yeah, the Malcolm McDowell thing. Like, yeah, honestly, like have have the threat be be a be a sci fi space threat. Not uh, that's not that not, that's not human related. So it's, so fucking. I mean, they could uh, so straight up. They could have done their original idea: the two enterprises battling each other. Mm-hmm. And you know Ronald E. Moore, whatever he he doesn't see that happening where they're both heroes, right? Yeah. Uh, okay. No, no. There's easily a way to do it. You have some villain that somehow uses temporal tricks to uh, make the other think that like they're destroying the timeline in yeah. some way, right? Mm-hmm. And so they have to battle each other. And at the end, they figure out who the enemy is and battle the enemy together. Mm-hmm. And then they're the heroes together. But like, yeah. yeah, they're both like in the dark the whole fucking movie. Yeah. It, it, it's so easy. There's yeah. an easy way to write this film the way they wanted to in the first place. Mm-hmm. And they fucked it up bad. Which is crazy because it's done by like two of the best writers in Star Trek. Yeah. And also they don't, they like, yeah, everything's bad. And like, and the fact that also like Data, you know, Data's a very funny person inherently. Yeah, for sure. And but they feel like because it's a movie, they have to go overboard with the comedy aspect, yeah. and that's why they had to be like you know like the failed Robin Williams, mm-hmm. and um and that's another thing that's very distracting and very hard to watch, you know <laughs> like you know when Data is like Data is like trying so hard to make you laugh, mm-hmm. and also then him freaking out and he's just, fucking cringe, dude. It's very Data cringe. is so cringe. <laughs> it's like watching the worst open mic you could possibly think of. It's it's uh, like from the moment like he starts his his comedy stuff, you're like, oh, he's an open mic fedora guy. Yeah, and yeah. can you imagine like the comedy that could have been created if they had brought Spock in, Spock and Data meeting each other, having oh a conversation. God. Like just just have like a uh, it's like a spectrum versus spectrum. Yeah, you know, yeah the so shit, cool. The shit writes itself. It'd be so funny. Yeah, yeah. and and that would that, that's the stuff they missed out on, and and instead they try they yeah they went for the cheapest possible option, mm-hmm. which is just like write the worst script and then like and just execute it in the worst way possible. Absolutely. And yeah, I feel like they just let it bake for a little while. Just the, bring, thing, the thing about. Like they commissioned three scripts 
There's mm-hmm. three scripts out there, and this is the one that won. Yeah, that's wild. What's I mean? I, I want to read the other two scripts because mm-hmm. I mean, if they're this one's the best one, mm-hmm. what the fuck, dude? It's gotta suck. Yeah, the other one's gotta suck. Yeah, yeah, but I do. Yeah, like, yeah, even if they just didn't include, and they could maybe only have talked about the original crew in passing, mm-hmm. and maybe like visited some sort of like, yeah, just like memoriam for them. Or just like some 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 statue or other thing that's been erected by James D. Kirk, and that's why I was saying like the hollow deck would have been a good place for them to just like to just like go and sort of interact with the past, yeah, uh, in a way that makes sense for that time. Because like you know, I'm sure they probably wouldn't have a statue to Jim Kirk, but but you know if like if there was like they solve some like you know decades old mystery that that involved Kirk in some way I, like I don't know I think they there's places they'd have a statue to Jim Kirk not on earth definitely, <laughs> but like uh in hell Yeah well I mean I was I was going to say like on Orion or something and be like uh this is the earthling that is uh service the most Orion prostitutes <laughs> give it up for Jim Kirk <laughs> Um all right, let's move on to costumes. Something you're you're itching to talk about. I love them. So, uh, as his first task when recruited for pre-production of Star Trek Generations, John Eves created several new combat designs. First, creating a flip-top version like the communicators of TOS. No, mm. uh, told to first review tapes of TNG to become more familiar with the new show. Eves ultimately redesigned Rick Sternbach's oval-shaped communicator badge that appeared in the TV series and early DS9. Uh, refining it to the oblong-backed design, later used in DS9, Voyager, and later TNG movies, uh, First Contact, Insurrection, and Nemesis. As well as the early flashback episodes of Star Trek Picard. <laughs> <clears throat> Costume designer Rick Blackman, or sorry, Robert Blackman, working simultaneously on the outgoing, current, and incoming series, as well as the film, reworked Starfleet's uniforms. The uniforms, however, were all scrapped at the last minute for fear of introducing too many new facets to the universe. Unaware of the change, Playmates Toys went ahead with production of action figures for the film, depicting the TNG cast in the unused updated uniforms. Uh The producers opted instead to use a combination of the uniforms from Star Trek The Next Generation and the uniforms from early episodes of Star Trek Deep Space Nine Mm -hmm. and throughout Voyager. Because filming was set to begin shortly, Jonathan Frakes and LeVar Burton had to borrow, respectively, Avery Brooks <coughs> and Colm Meany's costumes. Yeah. But and neither they- of them fit very well on Frakes and Burton, as Frakes had the sleeves on Brooks' costumes rolled up, and the sleeves on Meany's costumes were way too big on Burton. Yeah, like, Burton looks so, like, for one, yeah, like, Frakes, even though, like, Frakes is, like, uh, two inches taller than Cisco, like yeah. than Avery Brooks. Like, uh, I guess like I guess uh, uh, Avery Brooks has like maybe longer arms or something. That's why he had to roll him up. Oh no 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 no! He had to roll him up because arms were way too short. Oh, and so he rolls it up to make it look like he's like just rugged instead of like yeah. Because he, he had like the him, weird socks to cover in or or some sort of like sleeves. Undersh- it's an undershirt. Undershirt, yeah, yeah, yeah. sleeves to cover yeah, up the rest there. Terrible. It looks, it looks awful. Terrible. Yeah, and then um, and then uh, yeah, like uh, fucking uh, Levar Burton. At looks- least Levar Burton gets to spend like half the half of his scenes with a shirt off, getting tortured. Yeah, 
And yeah, right. LeVar Burton looks like he's wearing pajamas. Yeah, like he's are, are, swimming in the outfit. He's, he's absolutely so. swimming. Like it looks like he's wearing long, flowy, like comfortable pajamas. Yeah. Like yeah, it's, it's, and that's just like again, like just shows like the um um like the the budget cuts they took on this to have them wear, wear have them wear and like half the times like like they're all wearing different style uniforms together. Mm-hmm. Which is very odd, <laughs> and like, and it doesn't seem like there's any consistency, like, no. and because like, okay, so because like, also like, and it's like a time where I felt like they should have stuck with the original TNG uh, uniforms. Yeah, why uh, but, didn't they? They were already fucking custom tailored to these people. Yeah, and the be- and it's supposed to take place like pretty much right after, like it's it's a year after uh, all good things, I think, right? Yeah. So it's not that long after. It's no, and. And I and and the beginning when uh, Picard is wearing his original TNG uniform because mm-hmm. like because uh, yeah, I think they said like Picard and Data are the only ones that got actually got the new updated uniform that right. actually styled for themselves and um but when Picard is initially wearing his original costume it looks great on screen no oh, yeah it does it, yeah. it looks amazing and mm-hmm. I I mm-hmm. wish that they kept it and I w- instead of like having to half commit to to the new uniform style in the, and, in the film. And I think that is a big thing with this film. It's like, I feel like there's so many decisions that are just half committed. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's in like, if they would have just like gone one way or the other, it, you know, because, you know, a movie really at its essence is about a series of choices mm-hmm. that a director, screenwriter, and the actors make. Yeah. And, uh, you know, those those decisions and those choices, like, come together to make a sum of a film and like there were so many decisions to just take fucking half measures in this film yeah that like if it was just a thing here or there one or two or three things some continuity errors whatever in the film one bad costume that's fine but you have you have like two of the main build actors in the film have costumes that don't fucking fit. <laughs> whereas in the series that I assume is much much cheaper to produce per episode mm. they have custom tailored uniforms that look great on them. Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. And that, that's, yeah. It, it, wh- they like, still have those uniforms. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why, why the decision? Like, cause like, I'm sure they thought like the, the new uniforms looked better on screen for some reason, but I don't think they do. Like, right. I, like I was like, I was, uh, I was admiring how like the, the good, the original ones did look on, on, uh, on, on film, mm-hmm. but you know, we'll never know. It just—it's just a very bad choice. It's something I did not notice when I was a child. Obviously, mm. like it was something that just like did not connect and like the, the like did not be absorbed by my child brain. But like it's just like rewatching. It's like it's very, it's very like bizarre, and yes. it makes it look also very cheap because yeah. like having having cheap, ill-fitting costumes is something like a low-budget garbage thing. And, just. And, 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 in in Star Trek, it just doesn't make sense no. because you replicate mm-hmm. something completely tailored to your body. Mm-hmm. Like everything should fit snug and look great on you. Yeah, and it does in TNG the series because they all have their own custom tailored goddamn outfits. Mm-hmm. But you can't ex- you know spare that expense on a fucking thirty five million dollar like that's the thing is like where's the thirty five million dollars going? 
Yeah, no idea. Which all too fucking Rick Berman and Industrial Light and Magic. Yeah. Is that it? I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, uh, all, it all went to uh, CGIing that uh, wine bottle in space. Yeah, the wine bottle in space. Yeah, yeah. Uh, true. Uh, the, the the costumes for the two minute Christmas scene. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, the, oh yeah, uh, yeah. The, and that costuming was amazing. Um, maybe they did just pick that up at some other production that was making like you know Pride and Prejudice or some shit. Pro- though yeah, yeah. they were probably just like. Yo, can we borrow these real quick? <laughs> they probably actually probably took some little child actors from it. Like, hey, come here, come on, come on. Yeah, just pose as Picard's kids. Yeah, or like it was literally fucking um, uh, Patrick Stewart moonlighting doing his uh, Christmas Carol film, <laughs> yeah. and they're like, I mean, literally just use the same set. Like it, mm-hmm. it'll it'll look out of place, but we can just say it's Picard's uh, ideal life. I don't know. Yeah, and we'll we'll, hold, we'll put a holographic. Christmas ornament in there. That way everyone will know it's the future. <laughs> Even though he's wearing a fucking top hat. <laughs> I know, that, that scene was so lame. But Stupid. It was dumb, man. That, that's why I even more like commit to the idea that this is that, uh, that he's still in the Nexus because the Nexus was probably like, okay, he's not, this is not vibing with him. Like these chill, these, uh, these, uh, uh, having like the Christmas fucking Carol with all these like ugly ass kids doesn't want that. Nope. <laughs> well, how about Send it back? Go into the deep recesses of his brain and pull out what he truly wants, which is like to be in a Christmas Carol. To be, yeah, but Ebenezer Scrooge permanently. Yeah, <laughs> but before he becomes good. <laughs> yes. All right, let's move on to effects, baby. Oh, yeah. Uh, Between the release of Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, and the pre-production phase of Star Trek Generations, several advancements had been made in the art of motion picture visual effects, primarily spurred by steps forward in computer-generated animation in films like Jurassic Park, (laughs) pretty cool, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, very fucking cool. Uh, Generations marked the first Star Trek production in which many starships were rendered digitally by ILM. Despite this advancement, physical models were utilized for the majority of effects shots. Which I, you know, I'm a big model defender. uh, Yeah, me too. Like, I I think they still look the best. Like, I mean... They can well, look the best. I mean, well, uh, after, no, after not, Avatar. Not anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. After, uh, no, after. and also, like, uh, did you watch um, fucking uh, The Expanse? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that Expanse. was beautiful. Yeah, Expanse fucks. It was beautiful. Yeah. But I, I still like the models. I, I mean, I, I love models, too, yeah. but, like, I've never seen anything as beautiful as The Expanse done with models straight up. It'd like, be true. It'd be true. It, it was just, like, I mean... Like watching that in like 4K is like bull, bull. Now that Avatar 2 is out, like everyone's just like taking their hats off and stepping on them, like yeah, for, <laughs> for realsies. Um, wow, I keep on like scrolling. But yeah, I'm surprised they didn't reuse that one effect. You know, the first special effect that they had in um, <laughs> in uh, Rafa Khan. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, with the, I mean, to be fair, they didn't use that in six. All right. Yeah, they that, used it in like every other one. But that would have been that would have that would have been funny. That would have been so fucking funny yeah, if the, they find a the way to bio use it. or the what was the name of the, the Genesis thing? Genesis Project? Yeah, they they find a way to incorporate the Genesis Project animation in it. That, that if they did, I would have tipped my hat to them and yeah. given it an automatic A. <laughs> so unpacking the original six-foot model they built for Encounter at Farpoint in 1987, the ILM effects team completely overhauled the Enterprise-D. 
In order to stand up to high-resolution film cameras and a big-screen project, the Starship was repainted and redetailed, receiving a new interior lighting scheme. Once again, resulting from budgetary cuts, stock footage shots of the Enterprise-D were interspersed with new model photography and CG imagery, specifically during the first Captain's Log segment and the start of the saucer separation sequence. Stock footage from the previous film was also used to depict the destruction of the Dura sisters' bird of prey, as well as the ship's escape from Amagrosa. Also reusing the original USS Excelsior miniature from the Star Trek III The Search for Spock, ILM and John Eves were tasked with redesigning the ship to be used as the Enterprise B. Mm. So, uh... Johnny says, quote, first I took a photo that showed the Excelsior in space dock, did a rendering, and started putting add-ons on the ship. When I met with Mike Okuda, he pointed out that we needed to design an area uh, that protruded from the ship so that the energy ribbon could whip out a section while leaving most of the ship intact. So we built a section of decks extended out from the main body, which tapers gently on the bottom and flares out dramatically on top. We also did a detailed sketch of the area around the deflector dish, uh, designating one area as the reactor room. The addition of the decks gave the bee's belly section a similar look to that of a PBY Catalina, a flying boat from the 1940s. Mm. The added Catalina wine mixer. Hell yeah. The added girth increased the overall size of the vessel while still retaining the original Excelsior design. Mm. We made a few other changes, such as taking two fins off the top of the saucer and putting in two major impulse engines. As for the nacelles, we added a cap to them, plus a dorsal fin on top, and a running fin on the outer edge. I like how they talk about this starship like it's a a shark. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, For the single shot of the Enterprise B at warp, footage of the Excelsior from the previous film was reused from Star Trek III. A computer-generated model of the Enterprise-B was also created for scenes that required it to interact with the Digital Nexus Energy Ribbon. An all-new miniature was created by ILM, designed by John Eves, to represent the Amargrosa Stellar Observatory. The model was later reused with minor alteration in DS9's Destiny as the Wormhole Relay Station. The US... Uh, sorry, the Enterprise B model also turned up on that series as USS Lakota from DS9's episode Paradise Lost. Mm. Yet another refurbished model appeared as the dry dock uh, the Enterprise B was moored in, repainted and reconstructed from its very first appearance in 1979's The Motion Picture. Mm. So yeah, tons of stuff just being reused here. Yeah, why not? I mean, yeah, so the, um, most of that stuff looked pretty good, I think, still. Yeah. yeah. Uh, costumes, not not so much. No, yeah, that, that is funny. Like, with how much money they saved just reusing models, like, they couldn't just, like, spend a little bit more money getting fabric. It's crazy, right? <laughs> I mean, like, how much how much time and money does a, one of these costumes actually cost? Like, yeah. maybe maybe a couple hundred bucks. Yeah, yeah, just. Yeah, and come like, on. Have someone have someone make it make it like like yeah. What what is with your costuming department? Do you not have a costuming department? Yeah. Is that the problem with this film? Yeah, I mean like yeah, Soren was just wearing like what like some weird like just normal like villain black type stuff. It's yeah, like, some like Mad Max villain type. Yeah, shit. I mean it's just probably shit they picked up from something else somewhere else too. It's like where were they doing? Yeah, I mean but but Frank's wearing that wearing that you know small because like, yeah it looks small on him. <laughs> And, yeah. uh, and, and, and then, uh, Jordy, it's just like, uh, what's happening? Terrible. Here? Terrible. 
So arguably one of the film's most memorable scenes, the crash of the USS Enterprise D was shot almost entirely live by industrial light and magic. Hmm. Storyboarded by Mark Moore, the shots were achieved through the creation of a 12-foot model of the Enterprise D saucer section in a large landscape model. Suspended by large cables, the saucer model was repeatedly flown into the landscape, shot with high-speed cameras, and then slowed down in post-production and mixed with several composite shots of Viridian 3. A major sequence in the script, the crash of the Enterprise saucer section, was inspired by drawings of an emergency saucer landing in the Star Trek TNG technical manual. Mm -hmm. Following the crash, effects master John Knoll and his team donned Starfleet uniforms to appear as crew members of the Enterprise D, standing on a large blue tarp draped over the ILM parking lot. Footage of the team was later integrated into shots of the Enterprise hull and the Viridian landscape. Hmm. That's interesting. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, some fun effects in that film. I thought the effects were one of the stronger points in the film. They the were. Movie. They were. And especially like when you when later on when we have like uh, a fucking insurrection which looks like absolute dog shit. Yes, it does. Like, um, uh, yeah, it's interesting that it looks so good now and then they went back. Hmm. But uh, yeah, I mean, that was definitely the strongest. But, you know, Effects alone can bear, can only carry a sh uh, story so far, and mm -hmm. it's just like, yeah, it's not not that strong, you know, with 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 the villain or just like the and like what they're trying to accomplish. Like, Indeed, don't care. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, some production now. So with uh, production on TNG's final season still underway, cameras started rolling on generations. Principal photography began on the twenty eighth of March, nineteen ninety four. Scenes focused on Scotty, Chekhov, and Kirk aboard the USS Enterprise B and the later deleted orbital skydiving sequence. Yeah. I, I haven't heard about that. What, oh, yeah. yeah what, that, oh, do, do, do you know what that orbital skydiving sequence was? Yeah, it was originally meant for, uh, fuck, who, it was like something that you wouldn't expect. <sighs> I think it was supposed to be for like... Uh, Troy or something? No, uh, one of the TOS people. Oh, what? Yeah, yeah, but they end up reusing the um uh the orbital skydive thing for Balana and a and a Voyager episode. Oh, okay. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, who was who was who was supposed to do that? But I, I read that and I was just like, what? Probably Sulu or <laughs> yeah. something. Yeah, it was, it was just like yeah, but but also like where would an orbital skydive um, fit in the story? Fit in the story. Yeah, I mean like uh you know what it, it would probably be is no because they're. No, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how they could fit that in at all, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, so a 10-day hiatus followed the conclusion of production of TNG before the series cast went to work on the film. Shot on a relatively short schedule, the film was slated for only 50 days of production. The last day of the main filming was uh, June 9th, 1994. Location filming in the Valley of Fire in near Las Vegas was required for reshoots, which took place over eight days in September. For these reshoots, director David Carson's production offices temporarily moved to a Las Vegas hotel. Suffering through the 110-degree heat and dust storms of the Nevada desert, the behind-the-scenes crew quenched their thirst with Gatorade until the sports drink began attracting bees. <laughs> Carson was forced to wear an eye patch for at least one day of filming when his cornea was damaged during a surprise sandstorm. More comfortable filming days were spent in Pasadena at the Nexus Fantasy Picard oh. home, a week aboard the Lady Washington for Worf's promotion in Marina del Rey and the Mountains of Lone Pine for Kirk's cabin. 
a real residence that acquired a new kitchen and staircase built specifically for the shoot. Oh, I found out who did was did the skydive. I bet What's you can't guess. Who? Kirk, obviously. Oh. It was like, yeah, Kirk. What a, what a pussy. It was it was pretty much doing um Star Trek five. Uh yeah, you know, that makes sense. Yeah, where, when he almost dies. Yeah. Uh and um and it was supposed to be uh yeah, Captain Kirk making an orbital skydive and Chekhov and Scotty running to meet him when he lands on the ground. I wish someone would punch him in the face and break his orbital bone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah uh completing principal photography in summer of 94 oh, we're going to talk about reshoots now by the way oh nice uh rough cuts of star trek generations were screened for test audiences despite generally favorable reactions from the bulk of them audience comments reflected negatively on the film's finale in their joint dvd auto audio commentary uh writers moore and braga recalled a feeling of disconnect washing over the audience saying, we lost them. Yeah. I mean, still they lost us. Yes, they did. Uh, They lost us somewhere in the beginning, I think. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Returning to the motion picture had uh, Sherry Lansing's office on a Paramount lot. Rick Berman, Moore, and Braga were told, you have a great movie, but a bad ending. The production was given a budget of $5 million and told to reshoot the ending, (sighs) specifically scenes in which James T. Kirk is shot in the back by Soren. Forced to utilize the same location, the writers struggled to insert a brand new finale into the framework already established. In late September 1994, the production crew and cast of Generations returned to the Valley of Fire and James T. Kirk was killed all over again. (laughs) Which I love that sentence. Yeah. Uh, Having recently grown his hair for another project, Patrick Stewart wore a specifically fashioned hairpiece which covered his longer hair during the scenes. What hair? Yeah, maybe... Yeah, he, he got he got a little less bald for another project. Maybe, what? Maybe he got a skullet. Yeah, right. Oh, that'd be awesome, actually. Yeah, and, and I guess that's the original. Or yeah, the original um, uh, photoshopping out uh, what's his face's mustache for Superman. Oh yeah, like uh, uh, they. Which, like I don't know if you've seen clips from that. Like, oh, I, I watched the whole film. It's, oh, you watched it's, it? It's the worst. Ugh. Yeah, I, I couldn't bear. But I did see the like clip. Joss Whedon. Joss yeah, Whedon. I couldn't bear to watch that. Uh, no, I I accidentally watched the entirety of Justice League after it was on after wrestling one day, <laughs> and by the end you were just too stoned to get off the couch. <laughs> I was actually sitting right here. Oh wow! <laughs> I was just and I like like I was like, what? and then like two and a half hours later, I'm like, fuck that. <laughs> Uh, yeah it was it was something man man that's wild it sucked yeah i can imagine i hate joss whedon and i think and i think i I don't hate joss whedon he just what he did the art he makes is art that is not for me at all and i I think he actually like hits the mark on what he's trying to do but what he's trying to do is made for a type of person that is not like me and that i just don't for. What I don't <laughs> like about him is all of his characters sound exactly the same. It's definitely it has a case of just like everyone speaking with the writer's voice. What he's right behind me, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. Like uh like uh yeah, he's right behind me. Oh, that just happened. Mm-hmm. Like everyone has the same sense of humor and you see that specifically in like the Marvel movies like mm-hmm. all of these characters like all of the main Avenger people all have the same They're exact all- yeah. They sound exactly the same. It's crazy. Yeah, they're all like a watered-down version of Deadpool. Yes. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and 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 you see that and uh, you know, you saw it in Buffy, like all the characters, even though they all they're all distinctly different characters, mm-hmm. they all sound they all sound like you get them alone and they sound exactly the same. You could just like read lines and and if you tried to make a person guess who said that line, mm-hmm. 
they wouldn't be able to. <laughs> I mean, just just like the TOS, uh, TOS cast in this yeah, movie. Yeah, exactly. Joss Whedon could have written Star Trek Generations. Yeah, I feel his I feel his like uh, ability as a screenwriter is vastly overblown. <laughs> and yes. like, uh, but I mean, he 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 struck it rich on something that like really connected with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Given the 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 class of people uh, are mouth breathers, mm-hmm. you know. So whatever, it's yeah. it's it's entertainment for a certain type of person that is not me. Yeah, and I don't really understand to be no. honest. I mean, I, no, he's, I do. He's, I do he's, understand. Been, he's been canceled. So. Yeah, thank God. But yeah, thank he's God. he's out of here. Like same with Rick and Morty guy. He's out of here now too. So yeah. he's, but yeah, but that's that's kind of why I like. Uh, uh, Witcher guy didn't shave his mustache for that because he was just like no, Henry you Cavill. Yeah, Henry Cavill. Like Henry Cavill's so hot, dude. He rocks. Yeah, he like dude. Dudes rock, but especially Henry Cavill's such a dude. Yeah, like he's he just like Warcraft, not Warcraft, uh, Warhammer. Yeah, Warhammer 40k. Like all, I think all he does is like fuck bitches, paint Warhammer. <laughs> there you which go. Which is pretty cool, man. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, it was, it's very telling. Like they're just like, well, we need to do these reshoots, and uh, oh, you, you grew that mustache for something else, you know, something that could easily be redone in makeup, mm-hmm. you know, for for whatever role he's in. But he refused to shave the mustache off, so they're just like, oh, all right, let's just Photoshop it out, and it looks makes him look so, insane. So he didn't refuse to shave it off. Mm. Um, so basically, he was shooting another project at the time. And uh, Mission Impossible 5 or 6 yeah. or something. And he was like the villain in there. And he had a mustache. And um, uh, Disney was like, hey, uh, or not Disney, whoever has um, DC, whatever that fucking studio is. Yeah. Um, they uh, hit up the people who were making Mission Impossible and they're like, hey, uh, we need Henry Cavill back for reshoots. Mm-hmm. We will pay you $5 million to have him shave his mustache. And then he'll like, you'll have like four months to have him grow it back. And they initially, the producers of Mission Impossible were like, yeah, that sounds good. $5 million for a mustache sounds good. Yeah, we can do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then like last minute, they're like, wait, uh, no. No. <laughs> five minutes, five, no, we're not going to do that. And so they're like, fine. We'll just fucking CGI out his mustache. And so it looks <laughs> like he has like, uh, like he had hair lip surgery the entire film. <laughs> they're like, wait, how does a fucking Superman have a hair lip? That, yeah. that feels like a human thing. But, um, hmm. you know, it's, he just took a mirror and just like, wrote, a, and then representation. Like, Kryptons <laughs> can have hair lips too. All right. Yeah. He just like t- bounced his like lasers, eye lasers off the mirror. And then like, Oh, gave it. Oh yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah. Why not? I have a lot of reasons. why. <laughs> All right, um, so uh, Picard uh, wore uh, the hairpiece. Additional shots at the Pasadena Picard family home location were also required to clarify plot elements. Really? Ronald D. Moore commented, quote, <clears throat> By the time of the test screening, we knew that this sequence wasn't working. We'd already seen dailies, of course, and had watched several rough cuts of the picture, and everyone knew this wasn't playing the way we thought it would. Hope springs eternal, however... And we all went into the test screening with the hope that maybe we were overthinking the problem or maybe we were too close to the film to really be objective at that point. Unfortunately, the test audience reaction pretty much confirmed what we all suspected. We were disappointed that our original vision didn't work, but we were grateful that the studio was willing to give us the time and money to go back and fix it. The, excuse me, the executives believed in the picture and said basically... You've got a good movie here, but you need to fix the ending. So Brandon, Rick, and I put our heads together 
and struggled to come up with a workable way to reshoot the death of Kirk and then to tweak the Christmas sequence to make it a little more coherent and meaningful. It was a very difficult task because of the time, money, and set constraints. Bran and I talked over many, many different sequences involving various weapons, devices, hidden underground laboratories that Soren may have hidden under their mountain, uh, phaser fights, cat and mouse chases, etc., but ultimately they all proved impractical and interesting, prohibitively expensive, or all of the above. The bridge gag came to us as we watched the footage (laughs) over and over and realized that we might be able to use the established set pieces to our advantage. The studio, the directors, and the actors all liked the new version, and so that's what we went with. And it was worse, probably, than whatever they had. <laughs> yeah, like, shooting, well, I, mean, like, I guess he was shot in the back. That seems pretty un- uneventful, but at uneventful. the same time, like, it makes the villain more evil, but at the same time, this isn't a villain we care about at all. Like, no one gives no. a fuck about Soren, even though he's cool. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, they tease that he was a kind of a cool guy. Like, he has, this ba- he has some badass lines in this movie. He does. And I think, and I'm wondering if those lines are just badass because they're delivered by Malcolm McDowell. And, um, but, uh, yeah, like they're, they're, if they spent more time, like focusing on this, on him doing this evil thing and, um, uh, in like some sort of adversarial relationship that he had, that him and Kirk have or something, but yeah, it just feels like anticlimactic that he's just like killed by, by a random villain of the week. Basically, yeah. like he would have been a villain of the week in a TOS episode. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> not even like a great villain of the week, like a fucking con or anything. Yeah, yeah, and it's just like no, we and that's and that's part of the reason why I think like they should have left Kirk's eventual fate a mystery. Yeah, and and then just like only have um have like you know if they wanted to bridge the gap and have like the two casts meet each other, mm-hmm. the two captains like do it on the holodeck. Yeah, either, and, either, yeah, like, or have Kirk's death be a mystery in, like, a heroic way. Like, he, mm-hmm. he, like, goes into a fucking, I don't know, he, he saves everyone by, almost like the end of a, uh, Star Trek Discovery Season 2. Like, saves everyone by going into a time nexus mm-hmm. or something like that. And, and then they could have just called it, they could have had, like, a cryptic name for it. Yeah. That, that you could fill in the blanks for yourself as, yeah, exactly. as the viewer. And then he can come back whenever you want him to, yeah. or if he wants to, or mm-hmm. whatever. And like, you know, but it's also like a befitting hero's death if you want to see it that way. Yeah. And yeah. And then when, it, and kind of like, yeah, just like had skipped that whole, like, kind of just sad death, crushed to death on some, on a, on a, on a cold alien it's on a world. It's not that sad. Like, you know. I'm, well, I mean, I mean, sad as in pathetic. Oh, yeah. It is. Like, it that's, is. That's, 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 that's what that's I That's the thing. Yeah. Like, like uh, there are some meaningful deaths in in yeah. Star Trek, and some mm-hmm. deaths that like always get an emotional reaction out of me. Like, you know, fucking Spock's death in mm-hmm. in Con, yeah, makes me cry every time. Yeah, uh, Jedzia's death mm-hmm. makes me cry every time. Yeah, fucking Kor's death, yeah, makes me ball. <laughs> like Kor giving the speech to Worf after he knocks him out mm. before he wa- goes once more into the breach is like. The best. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's that's a Ronald D. Moore speech. Ronald D. Moore yeah. can make amazing death scenes. He wrote he wrote that fucking episode well, four years, five years after that. Yeah. After this. So it's like, he, he has the fucking power. He He's has, a great he, writer. Yeah, he has, he has the chutzpah. Yeah, like, uh, he could have done he it. He wrote fucking All Good Things. All Good Things is incredible. Yeah. All Good Things is so much better than this fucking movie. Mm. It has so much more emotional impact. Like, the moment where fucking like Picard is like, 
I should have done this long ago. Mm-hmm. And then fucking Troy is like, you were always welcome. Like, give, I just got chills thinking about it right yeah. now. And sometimes I cry thinking about <laughs> it because it's amazing. Mm-hmm. This has no emotional impact whatsoever. No, not at all. I, more than anything, I'm like, ha, they finally killed Kirk. Yeah. Neat. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, when he dies, you don't feel anything. No, I'm and, just like, oh, Kirk's dead. Okay. Yeah, and it's just, it's, yeah, just, yeah, crushed to death on a, on, in, a, in California. Yeah, and I guess I, <laughs> uh, Las Vegas. Oh, was it Las Vegas? It yeah, was, crushed, yeah. yeah, crushed to death in Las Vegas. Who cares? Yeah. And, um, and yeah, it's not a fitting, a fit, a fitting end to him. And, no. And, and really, like, also would have, that, that's why, like, cutting to if they had you know brought spock back because in the novelization like um there's a uh, spock has a moment where he refuses to enter the church where they're having the um the uh, memorial service Uh because he doesn't want to admit to himself that his friend is dead and and like you know because like because to actually like cross that threshold would accept that that it's actually true and so there's like and so like having a scene like that like like because like that like have have like a have like a bring some sort of emotional impact and meaning to his death rather than just like picard putting a bunch of rocks on him <laughs> and fucking leaving him and for that's the the thing, yeah and this is like I, I feel like it has so much less emotional impact because picard barely knows this guy yeah yeah he, he knows he of knows like, of him intellectually yeah yeah he he knows of like you know yeah his story and stuff like that mm. but like it's not a man he like cares about. And I think only mentions a few times throughout the series. Like I think he probably like mentions him in the um the naked uh now. Mm. You know, oh, how did Kirk's Enterprise, you know, deal with this and and stuff like that. And you know, there's a couple times where he where he name drops Kirk. We need to start calling Squirt Polywater. <laughs> there you go. Right. Yeah. I got that polywater intoxication, polywater. baby. But yeah, it's just like it's not it, but he's like never mentioned never mentioned that much i mean that even like like he's mentioned like once also in i think the star trek picard series mm-hmm. like you know when they talk on the when he's like oh yeah kirk's uh enterprise uh had met the watcher or whatever and shit like that you know indeed <laughs> so let's talk about some deleted scenes yeah. Along with the original ending, several minutes of footage were left on the cutting room floor of Star Trek Generations. Some of this footage is available on Star Trek Generations Special Edition DVD. Most of the deleted scenes were minor character moments uh, set following the crash of the Enterprise-D. Among the deleted material were sequences involving Dr. Crusher and Nurse Agawa returning to sickbay. So maybe that's where Nurse Agawa actually Yeah, was. yeah. Like all of Nurse Agawa's... Um... Uh, scenes ended up on the cutting room floor. <laughs> Fucking racists. Um, Jordy LaForge and Worf piloting a damaged shuttlecraft to rescue the captain. Additional footage aboard the Enterprise sailing ship in an alternative version of the Nexus Christmas segment. Mm. Scripted and shot at the request of William Shatner, the film's original opening featured Kirk skydiving from orbit to yeah. find Scott and Chekhov waiting on the ground below was also cut, replaced with the champagne bottle opening. How much money do they fucking waste on that scene? Because fucking William Shatner is a fucking dildo. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, yeah, I mean, he wants to, yeah, yeah. It's like, 
he, I think he wanted to be show like I'm having fun retirement type shit, you know, and like I'm skydiving. Well, it's, it's it's the problem with basically all Star Trek captains is they like don't realize that Star Trek captains are not action heroes. No, but they want them to be. And and yeah, and and and, and yeah, like I think I mentioned it earlier, like another one, like mm-hmm. like how like you know the TOS movies were all just like, um. Kirk's main nemesis was old age and his ego <laughs> and his ego. And you see that, that, that he never had, never had an arc. He never had an arc where he accepted it. No. And it's like, and there is like, there is like a, um, an honor and sort of just like, you know, thing, just accepting age and accepting yeah. aging and aging gracefully. Yeah. And, and realizing like, okay, my, my days of skydiving from, uh, from doing an orbital skydive are well behind me. Yeah. And, uh, I should just accept that. Yeah. It's and, like, he, like a more realistic scene would be him like picking up a newspaper and going, Oh fuck. And like grabbing his back and then like doing the crossword puzzle. Yeah. Yeah, and and even still, like you know, he doesn't really accept that he's no longer the captain of the Enterprise because he's still like you know is basically taken on, and he gives Harriman like the con, but he still wants to fucking like fucking go down there and be the hero. Like he could have, they could have literally ordered anybody, anybody else that's actually working on the Enterprise to do that. Right, like that could, and that so could maybe someone who actually knew the ship better because this is a ship yeah. that he doesn't actually know. This is a completely updated. Like, new yeah, Enterprise. they had a tour, but you know that tour wasn't like going to like the sensitive areas of the right. ship. It was just going to like, and this is and this is our uh, this is our cafeteria and this is where we hang out, you know, type shit. And it's not like yeah, like you would you would want to point to like, and that's you know that's another thing which I think we've talked about like you know or like the cap you know and there's another thing that like. Picard doesn't really do what he did throughout the series is Picard never went down to and would you to like the uh planet himself like and I mean, he does occasionally he, he does occasionally but that's not that the big thing was always Riker was the one right, to, right. Ta- to because take Riker didn't want to put him like in danger and that's that explained res- in like the first episode yeah to do that responsibility and and then but of course now in the in the TO and the TNG movies all Picard does is go head first into danger which nexus nexus fantasy but like um but yeah he like make doing uh being a captain is making hard decisions and harriman should have made the call because like really it's it's still shatner's call shatner's still calling the shots on the enterprise yep and it it should have been harriman to order one of the other people and his Herman's such a fucking pussy he was a that pussy sucks. and that feel like, like this, how did he ever get ca- captainship of the fucking flagship yeah. of of the you know the starfleet maybe he's a fail son or something oh that would make yeah, sense he's, he's or, a ne- or yeah like just like a nephew oh he's he's a he's a, a beau biden <laughs> yeah he's so biden <laughs> yeah but still he's, yeah get, get brain cancer from the nexus yep and yeah. <laughs> and still i'm like that and that shows all the way to the end like yeah, Shatner. Shatner still wants to be there. He still wants to be the action star. He wants mm-hmm. to be the adventure guy. Yep. And he's the adventure guy until death. Yeah. And I mean, the only action scene he's qualified for in this entire film is uh, where Picard first meets him and he's chopping wood. <laughs> he's also maybe qualified to take those burning eggs off of the stove. I think he did do all of his own writing though in this. Oh yeah. No, I mean he is. Yeah. I mean yeah. He, yeah. Uh, definitely him and Picard uh, or uh, Patrick Stewart did all their own writing. In mm-hmm. here. 
both of them are apparently experienced horsemen, mm-hmm. which I, I and would... it was it was also uh, Shatner's own horse that he used. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Yeah. I didn't know not know that. Uh, yeah. I guess it makes kind of sense because like Shatner's been in a lot of like westerns and stuff, mm-hmm. and then Patrick Stewart's been in a lot of Shakespearean stuff. So I yeah. figure you get horse <laughs> exposure. <laughs> that would have been yeah funny to see the two different styles of riding. Yeah, just like, oh yeah, because like or like uh like uh, fucking um. Uh, Patrick Stewart's like, uh, oh yes, I uh, I spend a lot of time around horses because uh, you know they're used in British theater a lot. And yeah. How, how about you? Uh, how, how about you, Shatner? You ever heard of Mister Hands? <laughs> <laughs> That's me, Mister Hands. <laughs> uh, I'm Mister Hands, arms all the way to the elbow, baby. This corset is actually keeping my intestines inside my body. <laughs> Otherwise, they'll fall out like silly string. Yeah. <laughs> Why is he whispering? <laughs> yeah. He's, it's a dark secret. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But yeah, like, but yeah, like, it ends with Shatner learning nothing. Yeah. So, so speaking of dark secrets, uh, the original script also called for a more extensive torture scene between Soren and uh, Jordy LaForge, mm-hmm. involving Soren injecting nanoprobes into LaForge's chest, which cause uh, his heart to stop for five seconds. While the scene did not appear in the movie, Soren's comment of his heart just wasn't in it that did appear in the movie references the torture as mm-hmm. does Dr. Crusher's medical examination where she discusses how she quote removed the nanoprobes yep. that also appear in the movie. So that, that kind of sucks continuity wise. Yeah. It's like who edited this thing together, <laughs> but it's like, yeah, they're probably just told like probably got a message from on high, like, all right, cut it down for time. And the guy's like, all right, no, just, and just skipping over like the fact, like, Oh yeah, we have two references to this crucial scene <laughs> that don't, that make no sense. I mean, you could probably say like you know you know his heart wasn't in it. Yeah, you know that that could that could that could that could still be passable, but like remove the nanoprobes. You're kind of like wait nanoprobes. <laughs> All righty, so let's talk about the reaction to the film. The release of Star Trek Generations was widely covered in the news media with Patrick Stewart and William Shatner appearing in character on the cover of Time Magazine in the winter of 94. On its opening weekend, the film reached number one at box office and uh, first weekend gross was $23 million. Critical reception, however, was mixed. The film earned a split decision from Siskel and Ebert. Gene Siskel gave the film thumbs up because he has bad taste in films, and Roger Ebert gave it thumbs down because he has great taste in films. <laughs> Writing for the Chicago Sun-Times, Ebert said the film, uh, quote, The Star Trek saga has always had a weakness of getting distracted by itself in Star Trek Generations. The seventh film installment is undone by its narcissism, uh, giving the film two out of a possible four stars. Ebert concluded, quote, <clears throat> Star Trek seems to cross the props of science fiction with the ideas of Westerns. Watching the fate of millions being settled by an old-fashioned fistfight on a rickety steel bridge, intercut with close-ups of the bolts popping loose and the structure sagging ominously, I was almost amused by the shabby storytelling. Why doesn't more movie science fiction have the originality and imagination of its print origins? In Stargate, the alien god Ra was able to travel the universe, yet still needed slaves to build his pyramids. Yeah. In Star Trek Generations, the starship can go boldly where no one has gone before, but the screenwriters can only do vice versa. Wow. Pretty scathing. Yeah, pretty I scathing. love Roger Ebert and the way he writes. Yeah. Like, he writes sentences that make me go, huh, 
fuck that was brutal you know this is very good yeah i mean it is and yeah it is funny yeah the fact that it all boils down with all the all, everything that's in the in the universe it all boils down to a fat man breaking a bridge <laughs> you're not wrong you're not really yeah fat, fat man falls off bridge is the, yeah. the full byline of the film like um yeah. So, uh, what else we got? BBC reviewer Tom Coates ranked the film at two out of a possible five stars, saying, "Quote: Generations feels like three lackluster episodes of the TV series mashed together with one of the earlier Star Trek movies. Devotees may find it necessary if depressing viewing, but there's little here for anyone else." Uh, Film.com's Lucy Mole, however, said of the film, "Quote: The meeting of." Patrick Stewart's John Luke Picard and William Shatner's James T. Kirk is worth the price of admission or video rental. It's the Clash of the Titans. Shakespeare meets the 60s. What? <laughs> Fuck that. Regarding some of the off-mentioned plot discrepancies within the film, Ronald D. Moore, writer of the film, commented, quote, Our reasoning, and it's ultimately thin, is that Picard didn't want to go back any further in time than absolutely necessary since he knows the extreme dangers of unexpected results from any tampering with the timeline. Okay. It's not much, but there it is. And so that, I guess, clears up one of my criticisms, but yeah. it's not very good as he knows. No. So, uh, Moran Braga further elaborated on this during the film's DVD commentary saying that the question kept coming up and they even asked themselves, quote, why would they go back to a point when their life would be in danger? Why not just go back a couple of months or so, find Soren in the bathroom or somewhere and take him out? They also said that questions like that apply to films like The Terminator, and you just have to hope that your film is compelling enough that the audience does not start asking questions like that. I mean, Terminator covers that, though. Terminator is very clear that like they keep on going back further and further in time, and they're mm -hmm. all over the timeline. Yeah. Like this is something that like repeats. I mean that I I, I can kind of see the argument with that where um Picard, you know, if he were to um uh confront uh Sauron and Ten Forward when he first meets him mm. and and when he, if he went back then and and like cuz like you know that's a, a place where he knows he'll be mm. and he goes and he and he takes him into custody then. Yeah. Um you know, everything that happens after that could it possibly affect the timeline in different ways? Because, like, you know, could yeah. And, but I mean, but if he goes back and he's just himself, but with knowledge of the future, mm -hmm. he's not altering a timeline. He's just like, well, in a way, he is because, because the timeline isn't written yet. Yeah, but like, but any every every small decision, like going back, because like they could, he could have gone back. And, um, Oh, your butterfly affecting this butterfly now. affecting okay. it. Yeah. Uh. So like any, any, everything could have had a butterfly effect to change it for different ways. And, it'd and be, then, yeah. It'd be amazing if like he went back like two months and like took out Soren and then like Aston Kutcher just wheels out in a wheelchair with no legs. And he's like, <laughs> who the fuck are you? <laughs> you have to go and fix the timeline. <laughs> yeah. But still, like you never know. But I can see, I can see his argument for thing that, like, but I think it probably should have, like, yeah, been stressing the uh, maintaining the um, about the timeline and stuff like that. But, I mean, obviously, they don't care about maintaining the timeline, considering Picard. Like, they just go and shit all over it. But uh, you know, I don't know. yeah. Uh, the film went on to gross seventy-five million dollars in the U.S., totaling a hundred and twenty million worldwide. That's fun, right? Uh, they spent thirty-five million on it. Uh, yep. Uh, uh, 
uh, 40 because they had to do the reshoots. Oh, that's right. So, so yeah, I guess I'm considered a success. Mm, ish. A financial success. Yeah, a financial success. And it, was, yeah. it, was, it was enough of a success that they could make first contact, and I appreciate that at least. Yeah. All right, next we got some cast notes. So the only people aside from the regular cast to participate in both this film and Star Trek Nemesis, the final TNG film, are Majel Barrett and Whoopi Goldberg. Hmm. In both films, Barrett voiced the Enterprise computer and Goldberg appears as Guinan. This is William Shatner's only appearance as Kirk without Leonard Nimoy's Spock. Yeah. Uh, suffers because of it. Uh, though the film marks the final canon appearance of William Shatner and Chekhov, uh, both appear again in the computer game Star Trek Starfleet Academy. This is James Doohan's last appearance as Scotty, although he had previously appeared in the role in TNG Relics. The events of that episode chronologically take place well after the events of the first act of Generations. Mm. Uh, Ahura is the only major character from Star Trek TOS not to appear or be referenced in dialogue, which kind of fucking sucks. Yeah. That really fucking sucks. And she would have been available. She would have done it if they Probably, asked her. Yeah, except she hated Chatner. So yeah, but I could see her. She would have, I think she would have like yeah. been in it. Uh, this is Whoopi Goldberg's first appearance as Guinan since TNG's Suspicions, uh, DS9's Rivals, in which the name All Aryans is established, uh, was originally intended to feature Guinan as Martis Mazur's mother, but Whoopi Goldberg was unavailable. Hmm. I don't know that. Uh, Tim Russ appeared aboard the Enterprise B in the opening of the film. He had previously appeared in TNG's Starship Mine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and DS9's Invasive Procedures, so he was in two episodes before this, uh, is different characters and would soon be cast as Tuvok and Voyager. Robert and Rene Picard were portrayed by different actors in the photographs in Picard's uh, album and the Nexus scene in the episode Family. Uh, Christopher James Miller plays the film's version of Rene, Captain Picard's nephew. He had previously portrayed William Shatner's son in an episode of Sequest DSV. <laughs> uh, according to IMDb, uh, Patrick Stewart was aided in his portrayal of Picard's grief by the script for Jeffrey, which he was reading on set. Oh, was that the one that he was growing out his hair for? I think it must have been. Yeah. Is that the one where he plays the gay man? I think it is. Yeah. Uh, shots of Picard standing over Kirk's grave did not actually feature Patrick Stewart, but rather Dennis Tracy. Tracy acted as Stewart stand-in and appeared earlier in the film as an unnamed Bolian waiter in 10 Forward. Mm. Although Data is the owner of Spot the Cat, Brent Spiner objected to the scene where Data finds Spot in the wreckage of the Enterprise, saying, does he have to find the cat? Can't he find, like, Geordi or something? Mm. I think as he wanted, uh, wanted to, but still like that's, it's I, still like a very, it's like a human scene that shows like he's becoming more human. Yeah. I, I mean, if he wanted a more significant, yeah. Like I, maybe he felt like finding like Jordy, you know, his best friend would have been more significant, hmm. but I think, but I think that also shows just like how human he's becoming where it's just like, yeah, humans would like, you know, you wouldn't think you would have such a strong emotion tied to a cat, <laughs> you know, I, but I think you would, Yeah, I think you would, but, but, but still like, but he probably wouldn't think that. And, and just like, you know, finding, you know, finding, um, you know, his cherished pet, you know, invokes such a strong emotional mm-hmm. response, which it does with normal people. Huh. And yeah, doesn't make any sense. 
Uh, here's maybe my favorite little factoid from the entire film. Hmm. The captain of the Lady Washington, uh, the ship used oh, yeah. for the uh, the wooden ship used for the vessel Enterprise at the beginning of the film, appears during the holodeck sequence of the film, taking over the helm from Deanna Troy. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty fun. Yeah. I really like that. He's the real life captain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which makes sense because, like, yeah, all those people, like, they're like, yeah, they're. They didn't seem like they were actors. They were probably just people who actually work on the ship, not do the work do the work of the ship. Uh, Generations marks the death of several major characters. We got James T. Kirk, mm-hmm. Robert Picard, Renee Picard, the Dura sisters. Yeah. Uh, it also marks the destruction of the Enterprise D and the final appearance of LaForge's visor, which I didn't even think about. Yeah. But yeah. He gets the the fun eyes in the next film. Mm-hmm. After the release of Generations, William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy made a joint appearance on Live with Regis and Kathy Lee. Host Regis Philman asked Nimoy if he would appear in another Trek film, to which he replied, If Shatner shows up, I'll be there. Mm-hmm. Shatner then quipped, You are such a liar. <laughs> I showed up and you didn't. Ironically, Nimoy later appeared in both the 2009 film Star Trek and 2013 film Star Trek Into Darkness without Shatner. Of the two Dura sisters, only Lursa's name is ever mentioned within the context of the movie. Betor's name is never spoken. Oh, really? The only time her character is actually identified is in the closing credits. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's those crew notes. Next we got... Uh, now we're going to skip references to other films in the series and go to props and sets. So... A bottle of Saurian brandy can be seen in the reception room at the christening of Enterprise B. Mm-hmm. Captain Picard's chair was stolen from the set mere hours before shooting was scheduled to commence. A new one was quickly fabricated. This incident became infamous enough that novels relating to Star Trek The Next Generation written after the movie often have Picard's chair being stolen for one reason or another, which I really like. Uh, Data's emotion chip has varied in shape and size since its last appearance in TNG Descent Part 2, which in turn was different from its previous appearance in TNG Brothers. Also, Geordi inserts the chip into Data's head, while in Brothers, Dr. Soom implanted the chip into Lore's uh, neck. The piece itself seen in the movie was a gold-plated plastic weapon common in the Zoids model kit line from Japan and America. Weird. Among the items visible in Captain Kirk's house are a painting of the original Federation starship USS Enterprise, the ship's dedication plaque, a publicity photo of the cast of Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, a Klingon Batleth, which I didn't notice, a Starfleet phaser from uh, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, and a Jem Hadar weapon from DS9, which is pretty cool and I did not notice at all. While searching through the wreckage of Enterprise D's bridge, Picard happens upon the top half of the Curlin Naskios originally seen in TNG's The Chase mm-hmm. and places it back on the floor. Yeah, like that the the, the 12,000-year-old alien artifact that mm-hmm. he was gifted by his um archaeology mentor. Yes. Who, and this thing is like who was like, like his favorite professor or whatever. Ever. Yeah. And yeah. this is a priceless thing. Like it's literally priceless. It's one, it's like, it was notable for being completely intact. Hmm. And, uh, like it has like this whole like inner thing. You lift the top off and it has all the inner, uh, this like thing. Like it's, and I guess it's super rare to find one that's like one, com- like undamaged and two intact. And, 
Picard, yeah, just disregards it because I'm sure like I'm sure Patrick Stewart forgot they they were just like looking through props they already had made. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Patrick Stewart and they were probably like, Oh yeah, use this and like he completely had forgotten what it was about. <laughs> Wild. Yeah. All right. Next, we're going to uh, go to awards and honors for this film. So, this uh, this film was nominated for six different awards uh, across uh, several several different things. So, uh, the only two it won were uh, the ASCAP Film and Television Music Awards, uh, the award for Top Box Office Film. The award went to Dennis McCarthy for that, which he did a, do a pretty good score here. Yeah. Um, and then the Universe Reader's Choice Awards gave Best Writing for a Genre Motion Picture to Ronald D. Moore and Brendan Bragg for this. Mm. No. Um, <laughs> the ones it was nominated for uh, got nominated for a Hugo Award in Best Dramatic Presentation, Lost. Uh, got nominated for two Saturn Awards, one for Best Science Fiction Film and one for Best Supporting Actress to Whoopi Goldberg, Lost. Oof. And my favorite one that unfortunately was only nominated for is it was nominated for a Razzie award. We're supporting actor to William Shatner lost. Wow. Yeah. I feel that's the one he was born to make to win. Absolutely. I mean, if he's born to win anything, it's that. Yeah. But I think we'll leave it there. Yeah. It's uh, all you need to know about Star Trek generations. I hope you enjoyed us talking for five and a half continuous hours about this dog shit film. (laughs) Definitely. It was definitely, uh, the, what it deserves. Indeed. It deserves a five and a half hour breakdown by two idiots who did not like the film <laughs> and did not understand it. You know what? Maybe we're so dumb we just didn't get it. I like That's to believe be, that. That could be true. Ignorance is bliss. You know what? That's what I'm going with. Yeah. I mean, they, uh, it was it, like restraint. It would have it would have benefited from restraint. Like maybe like they see each other through like some sort of like window of time and then they and give each other passing passing uh, nods of respect or something. We, we've come up with a lot of ideas yeah. to improve this film, but ultimately the best way to improve this film is to have never made it in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah, do something different, but you know, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't turn back time. You can't turn back time. And, uh, you know, you can't unsuck that dick. So <laughs> yes, like, <laughs> no, you can't, you, you certainly can't. You can't unsuck that dick. So like, uh, you know, you just gotta, you just gotta roll with the punches and just accept it for what it is. Guess with that, <laughs> Captain's Log Supplemental. Well, that's all, folks. Looks like it's time for us to warp away. Be well, travel safe, and uh, don't watch Star Trek Generations. It's not great. Yeah, I would say do it if you want. I mean, do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. It's a free, free fucking country, it's, unless it's, you're not living in a free country and listening to this. I thought it was interesting. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for checking with us, soy boys, girls, and other worldly beans. Hang dong and shocker. Soy, 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 so